Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. You're listening to the best of the Indo-Daily. Today on the Indo-Daily. I remember the late 1960s. Gay people were victims on a culture that had no respect, no tolerance. We were being brutal alive. We were being murdered. We were being ostracized in a sense. Stonewall was a safe haven for LGBT people. The Stonewall riots in 1969, I think, obviously it was a very pivotal point in our history. It was when we all stood up and a trans woman of color said enough is enough and it started a movement. And it started a movement that said, we're not less than you, we are your equals. When you think about the riots, you think about unity. And that unity is something that we've never lost. Out. Loud and proud, the story of pride. It must be love, love, love. In the early hours of June 28, 1969, New York City police raided the Stonewall Inn, a gay club located in Greenwich Village in New York City. We were in the back of the room and the lights went on. So everybody stopped what they were doing because now the, the police started coming in uh, raiding the bar. They pushed everybody like to the back room and slowly asking for IDs. Meanwhile, there was crowds forming outside the Stonewall wanting to know what was going on. Now that raid sparked what is now known as the Stonewall Riots because it served as a catalyst for the gay rights movement in the United States and all around the world. One year after those riots, a large crowd gathered outside the bar on Christopher Street and they marched. And out of that came the first Gay Pride March as we know it. I'm Siobhan Maguire and as we celebrate Pride Month worldwide, the Indo-Daily goes back to the story of how it all began and indeed how it helped shape the LGBTQ plus community ever since. I'm delighted to be joined today by producer and writer Bill Hughes, who can tell us more about the history of Pride, but also his own experiences on growing up gay in Ireland. At first, I was very guilty. And then I realized that all the things that are taught you, not only by society, but by psychiatrists, are just to fit you in a mold. And I've just rejected the mold, and when I rejected the mold, I was happier. Bill, let's get stuck in from the very beginning and talk about the Stonewall Riots. The Stonewall Riots came about, and it's, 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 it's weird, in 1969 in New York, 
there was all over America, there was a peculiar kind of gray law where men going into a bar that was known to be a gay bar uh, couldn't talk to each other face to face. They had to be facing on. They, the only person they could speak to directly was the barman. If there was a man on your right or a man on your left, you couldn't be seen speaking to either of them. It was just the most bizarre and ridiculous law. And the, the cops used to regularly raid the gay bars because it was an easy way to bring up the numbers for the arrests that they'd managed to do that week. This was a highly unusual raid. Going in there in the middle of the night with a full crowd, the mafia hasn't been alerted, the 6th Precinct hasn't been alerted. We only had about six people all together from the police department. Knowing that you had a precinct right nearby uh, that would uh, send assistance. And uh, the gays were seen as easy pickings. Mm. Well, it just got too much for the gays in the Stonewall Inn in New York. And the gays who frequented Stonewall were uh, a lot of uh, trans people and drag people, um, a lot of ethnic minorities, uh, uh, people from a lower socioeconomic uh, background. And so it really was the cops kicking people while they were down. And it was just once too often. They arrived and started to push and shove and bully and hit the drag queens. And the drag queens just went, nah, no, we've had enough. And they turned around and fought back. And this was so surprising for the cops because to suddenly go from a timid, passive response. At a certain point, it felt pretty dangerous to me. They were suddenly facing true aggression. And the aggression, aggression was self-defense. And uh, so the, the riots spilled out onto the street and the riots stayed out on the street for days. And it became a rallying cry for gays across America that were fighting back in New York. What are you doing? And that's basically the Stonewall riots in a nutshell. And it's sad now because the Stonewall Inn, you know, like all special places, has turned into a tourist attraction. But an awful lot of people uh, go there for drinks not knowing what the Stonewall struggle was and not knowing anything about the great characters there, Marsha P. Johnson, people like that. It's just on Sheridan Square. Uh, uh, just across the street from Christopher Street. And, and uh, it's right down in the heart of the West Village. Uh, a wonderful place to, to go. You've had a drink there yourself, haven't you, Bill? Many. I've had many drinks there. <laughs> I've, I've had, you know, it's a chance to meet people because there's a sort of a triangle there, the duplex and the monster bar across the road. And the monster bar across the road has a piano. And... Uh, so a lot of the, the show queens, the people who are big on show tunes, who have either been on Broadway or have always dreamed of being on Broadway, love to go there, sit at the piano and belt out the, the show tunes. And uh, it's a great bar to go for, for just a buzz, a real buzz, old-fashioned games. 
<laughs> that sounds absolutely brilliant. And uh, as all this was happening in terms of the riots, Bill, what was the kind of media reaction to to um, what was happening at the time? And indeed, you know, people back in Ireland in the gay community, what were they making of all of this? Well, it took a while for the news to filter out because let's say it wasn't on the RTE 9 o'clock news, you know. (laughs) It was not something that was celebrated. And, you know, in the press, the casual use of words like degenerate, Mm. uh, sodomists, uh, you know, they were very perverts, you know. These were the sort of words that were used by the media uh, to sum up what these people were about. So it was a really homophobic time uh, and it did take a number of years for the tide to turn. And, you know, I was uh, 14 in a Thai county Kildare mm. and I didn't know anything about the Stonewall at the time. Uh, and I came out to my parents in 1972, so three years later. And um, I still didn't know about Stonewall. It was only when I went to drama school in the, the 70s, the later 70s, that I started to hear my my history, my gay history. Once I'd found my tribe and once I'd found my, done, done my coming out and uh, met the, the, my peer group and realized, you know, you're not alone. You're not a weirdo. You're not a pervert. You're not a degenerate. You're a decent person and just get on with it. And, uh, you know, but, but society kept putting these horrible labels on, on everything then. And it's, it's frightening to see the return of that kind of language in America today uh, by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, by people like uh, followers of Trump, who just believe that uh, they should take away all the rights of gay people. And in fact, there was a reverend uh, in the States this weekend who stated that uh, in his church, and he has not been arrested. I mean, this is he's been allowed free speech. And he said that all gay people should be lined up against a wall and shot in the back of the head. And this is, you know, the kind of thinking that gay people have to put up with. Uh, so when people say to me, why do you march? March because of that bullshit. You know, that's that's why. Yeah. You, know, it's, it's, you can't. You can't be coping with that. The essence of pride really stems from, you know, that, that parade in 1970 on Christopher Street at the Stonewall Inn commemorating the fact that people took a stand. Because if two homosexuals can live together and thrive and to be constructive rather than destructive to each other and themselves without legal bonds, without children, without the sanction of the great society, then uh, they can demonstrate to heterosexuals they need not be so concerned with their property and their marriage and divorce laws. And you think that you're happier now that you've realized exactly where your feelings lie? Indeed, I'm just sorry that it took so long. I'm sorry that I spent so many years in the closet. And that's what we've got to keep doing. That's why we've got to keep parading. Because in the recent Jubilee celebrations in London for the Queen, 
uh, as the head of the Commonwealth. And the number of times the Commonwealth was portrayed as this warm and wonderful uh, group of nations. What has to be remembered is that there are 54 countries in the Commonwealth and in 35 of them, it's illegal to be gay. In 35 of the countries of the Commonwealth. And in his Christmas message this year, Tom Daly, the alternative Christmas message, Tom Daly, the Olympic gold medalist, said that his dream for this year was that attention would be paid to the amount of gay persecution that goes on in Commonwealth countries when it came to Britain hosting the Commonwealth Games in July 2022. And in Birmingham, uh, in July 2022, here we have the Commonwealth Games, but as I say, 34 of those countries in the Commonwealth, it's illegal to be gay. And what kind of world is that? And what kind of message is that, that it is acceptable? It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable on any level. And while there are still 13 countries in the world where you can be sentenced to death for being gay, we've got to keep marching. There's got to be pride. People have to get out there and say, you know, because you've got, you've got the anti-group who say, oh, the gays, they have everything now. No, they don't. They don't have basic human dignity. They don't have that. And they certainly cannot live uh, openly uh, in commu many communities because it's frowned upon and it's still frowned upon. And as long as that level of homophobia still exists, then we're all in trouble. It's a bit like COVID. As long as COVID exists somewhere in the world, we're all in danger. And I say the same about homophobia. As long as it is uh, open and easily expressed by governments around the world, then we're all in trouble. Because we've had our own issues uh, here in Ireland earlier this year with a, a, a spate of attacks on uh, gay people across the country, including murders. And murders. Yeah. I know it's been a difficult week for the LGBT community. There have been a number of incidents um, which I think have upset uh, and have been distressing for people. Um, speaking to my own friends, uh, indeed, I would include in that. Um, uh, these are incidents that we thought were behind us. It is shocking. It is shocking to think that in today's society that anything like that can be accepted as an, a normal behaviour. And it's not a normal behaviour. So that's why the gays must march and remind everybody that uh, being gay is normal and it's fabulous. Protected behind an acrylic panel, the first ever rainbow flag is a manifestation of freedom. It was created by Gilbert Baker in 1978 when activist Harvey Milk asked him to come up with a symbol for the LGBT community. Baker knew it had to be a flag. Flags are about power. Flags say something. You put a rainbow flag on your windshield, you're saying something. It is fabulous. And, you know, the rainbow flag, synonymous with pride, synonymous with the gay community. This all stems back to Harvey Milk. Well, Harvey Milk was just the most extraordinary man because he believed that uh, he would have to, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. So he decided to join the city council in San Francisco and become a politician because it was the politicians who wielded the power and who were making the decisions that affected gay people. And once he 
became an elected representative, the first elective, elected out gay representative. Um, and he went to the city council. He started to uh, portray that, that, that gay life was perfectly normal and should be perfectly acceptable. And his reward for doing that was a bullet in the head. Uh, he was shot by uh, a colleague who couldn't handle uh, Harvey Milk's uh, out um, and proud message. And his out and proud message was for total inclusivity, which is what society should be about. It should be inclusive. Yeah. And uh, he was way ahead of his time. Uh, and, and, and he got a bullet for his troubles. Harvey Milk also wanted to make an introduction. Um, it is well known that I'm a gay person, and in this state, there is a law that says gay people cannot be married, but there is no law that says two human beings cannot love one another. I have a loved one. Uh, unfortunately, he is too nervous to be here. He left. As you say, he was all inclusive. He wasn't just about an emphasis on, you know, looking after and minding the gay community. Here was a man who was worried about the elderly, those less fortunate in his community. And, you know, a man who actually had it all on Wall Street and gave it all up. The day Nixon invaded Cambodia was the day I had to speak out against uh, war profiteers, large corporations and so forth. And so I got rid of my Wall Street career, which was in Montgomery Street here. And uh, when I walked through that door, I kept walking and announced to the world that I also was gay. And it was like taking a huge burden off my back. Uh, I no longer had to live a double standard, a double life. Yeah, and that kind of selfless activism is something that is generally missing in society today, that people put the cause above themselves. And he put the cause above himself and paid the ultimate price. Bill, can we talk about growing up gay in Ireland? But when I was growing up, um, it was my big secret. It was my dark secret. And for a lot of the time, you truly believe you're the only one. And you believe that there is nobody else like you and nobody else with these feelings. And then luckily, the English... Uh, uh, red top papers, uh, Sunday papers like the News of the World and Sunday People and all that, you started to read stories about alternative lifestyles, mm. about people having sex changes and people, you know, people, people transitioning. In those days, it was they're having a sex change. And you had great uh, uh, examples like April Ashley, uh, who stood out, but you didn't. Like, I, I didn't equate myself with the trans uh, cause for a very long time. And in fact, I resisted it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to say now that for a lot of my uh, maturing life, I did not embrace the cause of the, the trans population. And I totally embrace it now. And I am embarrassed by some of my previous feelings on the subject. But I, uh, you know, that's all evolution. And uh, we're learning more. And the trans population are learning more 
uh, themselves. And the, we now can equate much uh, simpler that, that the gay and trans, that the LGBT, the T, is crucial to the LGBT uh, equation. And now we've got LGBTIQ+. Uh, so it's getting, you know, people laugh and think it's alphabet soup and alphabet silly and all that kind of stuff. But it is important that people's identities are uh, enshrined in whatever uh whatever uh, grouping, societal grouping we are given. The portrayal of the gay community uh, on Irish television across the decades has been really shocking. Uh, I came across archive footage where people were being asked for their opinion on the gay community and their responses, their unapologetic responses were that it's sick and it's disgusting. Well, seeing two girls together, it's a bit sickening, I think, you know? Mm-hmm. I saw um, some, some gay people, fellas, homosexuals, and um, they were in a bar, I was in a bar, and I remember, I did, didn't know whether they were gay or not, I just presumed they were because they talked very highly and they had all the genetic looks about them that they were gay, you know, they looked. Um, I remember utterly being shocked, you know. We have the national chairman of the Irish gay rights movement, David Norris. David. Are homosexuals sick people? No, indeed they're not. Um, We're neither sick, ill, pathological, neurotic, or any of these emotive terms that are occasionally used by people who are not well informed on the subject uh, to conceal their own prejudices and to allege that we are ill. I don't feel ill. I hope I don't look it. Uh, We are, of course, subject as ordinary other people are to head colds, influenza, (laughs) hangover, to this type of thing. Yeah, and how does that make a young person feel? A young person like me. Exactly. I'm growing up and feeling, oh my God, I am a pervert. I am a pariah. And, you know, I, I I went to boarding school, then I came to UCD. And in UCD, I found in the drama sock, a number of people who were on the same (laughs) journey I was. And then I got my place in drama school in England. Off I went. I landed in the middle of uh, a carnival of gays and I realized, wow, there's a party going on that nobody in Ireland knows about. And uh, so so then for me, my my transition into my gay life was... uh, was made much easier. We, we hope that with more representation on television and in media, that people find it easier to talk. Back in 1997, I was commissioned to make uh, a documentary, The Love That Dare Not Speak Its Name, A History of Gay Lives in Ireland, from the trial of Oscar Wilde, 1895, to the decriminalization, 1993, which is kind of a neat bookended century. And I uh, took out ads, spent 5,000 uh, punts in those days, uh, taking ads in the Sydney Herald, the London Times, the New York Times, the Village Voice, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, um, saying, if you're Irish and you're gay and you left Ireland because of your sexuality, would you please contact us? so that we can interview you about your experience to include in this documentary. And all of those prominent ads were run. And how many responses did we get, Siobhan? 
We did not get one. Stop. Not one. Not one response. Now, this was 1997. This is pre-internet. Yeah. Pre, but whereas now people disembowel themselves daily on Facebook. So, you know, they'll tell you everything yeah. and they'll tell you what they had for breakfast and what they're going to have for lunch. And they'll tell you about their cat. Uh, but a lot of the gay community are telling us about their uh, partner, their love life, their social life, their uh, peer group. And so it's a different world. And in that 20 years, uh, it just seems that if I went back to make that documentary now, I wouldn't be, it, it would be a uh, hundred hours long because there'd be so many people um, wanting to be part of it and wanting to share their stories. Uh, but when we were doing it in 97, nobody wanted to know. I am 45 years old and I have never once unselfconsciously held hands with a lover in public. I'm 45 years old, and I have never once casually, comfortably, carelessly held hands with a partner in public. I don't know how many of you can even imagine what that might be like, because, of course, it's a small thing, isn't it, holding hands with a lover in public. And it's not that nobody wanted to, it's just that we didn't feel comfortable to do that. Now, like many gay people, when I was younger, in my young life, I struggled at one time against being gay. I didn't want to be different. I didn't want to be this thing that I didn't really understand, this thing that I had learned was shameful or joke-worthy. Pride here didn't start until, uh, was it the 1980s was our first Pride Parade, 1983. Actually, did you attend? I did. Oh, I good did. stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just uh, I was I was in the shadows. I wasn't one of the ones out brazen on the street. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I was there because uh, I was a regular attendee of the Hirschfeld Centre and uh, Barclay Duns and Rice's and the Bailey on a Saturday afternoon, all the places that the homosexuals used to gather. And not just homosexuals, but lesbians and, and gays and gay allies. And uh, yeah, so I was part of those early, those early wa- walks up the street with the banner. <laughs> they were not parades. They were, they were just walks. Yeah. But very, very significant walks because it was against a backdrop of a very confused uh, society, really, in terms of how it was thinking and approaching the fact that a person is born gay. But by walking up the street in those days, this was pre-decriminalization. So effectively, you were walking up the street saying, hello, I'm breaking the law. Yeah, that's what we were saying, and and so you had to be extremely careful depending on your job, so that you know if you were a teacher or worked in a bank, uh, they were regarded as jobs where homosexuals could not be tolerated because they would be open to blackmail or they would be open to corruption in some way, and uh, so that was a different society and a different way of thinking. But decriminalization in 1993 changed all of that, and it really did. And it said to the society at large, these people 
are not mentally ill. These people are taking their rightful place in society. So decriminalization meant so much. And we owe such a debt of gratitude to, you know, Kieran Rose and, and, and Christopher Robson and David Norris. And, and, you know, we just owe such a debt of gratitude to all the people responsible for making that happen. In my lifetime, I've seen the extraordinary transition from being a criminal to a position where I could actually marry another man. Uh, and with regard to the criminality aspect, yes indeed, during my lifetime, I've seen men sentenced to jail for nothing other than their sexual preference. I've also seen people being subjected to involuntary electroconvulsive therapy, which I can assure you certainly did not improve their lives. And at the other end, with all this marriage equality and everything else, as I said to somebody the other day, I spent so much time pushing the boat out that I forgot to jump on. And the next thing I saw it going out around the harbour and little figures all waving at me. And there I was standing on my own uh, on the strand. And the marriage referendum then, uh, Bill, how significant is that in the lives of the LGBTQ plus community? The message from this small independent republic to the entire world is one of dignity and freedom and tolerance, liberty, fraternity, egalite. We have a lot of referendum in this country, but you know, when we pass some referendum to do with the bail laws or something, we don't have a party like this in Dublin Castle, you know, so very special. Um, the fact that it went to public vote and the fact that people came out in their numbers to vote. But it, it wasn't just the result, it was the campaign. And it was coming home to vote and getting parents to vote and grandparents to vote and to please say yes, please say yes. There was that marvellous TV campaign where uh, the actor Hugh O'Connor went door to door saying, may I ask permission to marry you know, some, whatever, may I ask permission? And it was it was a wonderful uh, capsule moment because it was basically telling people, uh, we can't get on with our lives and we can't marry the person we love because you haven't given us permission. Would you please give us permission? And when it was reduced to that kind of clear thinking, uh, it was very significant because uh, the, the vote yes, said that the majority of Irish people approved equality for gay people. Now, my feeling is always that two thirds of the population voted in favor of marriage equality, but one third, one third, a huge proportion voted against it. And I want to know what their motivation was. And I'm still curious because I meet people who are ashamed now that they voted no. Um, but I meet people who are entrenched, who feel that the no vote was the right vote. So society is still divided. It's still a topic out there, much like repeal of the eighth. And that is a divisive topic too. So while there's a lot done, we still have a long way to go, Bill? Oh, we certainly do. We have a long way to go because uh, it, it wasn't unanimous and, and it wasn't, 
you know, it was it was a two thirds majority, but that's still significant that that so many people did not agree with it. And I'm I'm more fascinated by the no's than I am by the yeses. My thanks there to Bill Hughes, producer and writer. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode was presented and produced by myself, researched by JJ Clark, recorded by Gavin Hennessy with sound design by John Smith. Archive clips from independent.ie, RTE Archives, CBS News, NBC News, CNN, the Stonewall Uprising documentary, the Library of Congress in Washington, the White House Archives, TEDx Talk Dublin, and Labby Sifra, It Must Be Love. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow, and leave us a review. <laughs>